0: As you know, as of Thursday evening, both of the major political parties have finished their respective conventions. Donald Trump has accepted the Republican nomination for president, and Hillary Clinton the Democratic nomination for president. Have you made your decision yet who you're going to vote for? With a show of hands, how many are you going to vote for? I'm kidding you. I'm not going to do that. I would never do that. In the next three to four months, uh, each candidate will make promises about what they're going to do. You know, they've got different perspectives on the world and on the condition of the world that we're in. They have different things that they want to uh, accomplish as well. But my question to you is, do, do any of you think that either of these candidates are going to be able to solve the problems of our world once and for all? Any of you think that? Any of you think that they're going to be able to solve uh, racism in our country once and for all? Any of you think that they're going to be able to solve uh, terrorism in the world once and for all? How about greed? You You think either one of these candidates are going to be able to solve greed once and for all? No? You don't think that? You don't think they can? Well, I think you're right. However, there is a time in the future where the Lord Jesus Christ says that all of these problems are going to be solved. And it's in a time that the Bible refers to as the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me in them to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. It's very easy, isn't it, to get very cynical about the world that we live in. Very easy to get so cynical, thinking that boy, there's just nothing that anyone can do to change this. Book, Sean Little made a point to me this past week that Sean, uh, excuse me, that Cory Booker, uh, senator senator from New Jersey, uh, from New Jersey, said in the Democratic convention that cynicism is for cowards, and I agree. I think the Lord Jesus would agree. There is a day coming where all of the problems that we face as a nation will be solved. And here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is talking about this. Just want to remind everybody that we're in a series in which we've been looking closely at the last eight days of Jesus' life and ministry as it is recorded in the gospel of Mark. Just a reminder again that here in Mark chapter 12, uh, we're still on Wednesday of Holy Week. Does it seem like we've been on Wednesday of Holy Week for a long, long time? Because we have. It's been a number of weeks. But we're still on Wednesday of Holy Week. Jesus will be crucified in just two short days on Friday. The religious leaders of Israel have sent delegation after delegation to Jesus on Wednesday to grill him with theological questions that are intended to prove him a fraud, but it has been to no avail. In fact, Jesus has answered their questions so deftly that after their last little scrum, Mark says in verse 34, that from then on, no one dared ask Jesus any questions. But just before Mark says that, he tells us that Jesus told one particular religious leader, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, here's here's the question. Here's the question. What was he talking about? What is this kingdom of God that he's referring to. Well, I think that the remaining verses here in chapter 12 elaborate some on what Jesus meant by this phrase, the kingdom of God. I think these these verses teach us four things about the kingdom of God. Here they are, the history of the kingdom, the ruler of the kingdom, the subversiveness of the kingdom of God, and the cost of of the kingdom of God. I'm going to say those one more time. The history of, the ruler of, the subversiveness of, and the cost of the kingdom of God. Now we're going to read all the way through verse 44 today, but I just want to pick up the reading at verse 35, and we'll just read a couple of the verses for right now. Verse 35, Mark chapter 12. While Jesus was teaching... In the temple courts, and you remember this is where uh, these uh, theological debates were happening. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked. They've been asking questions. Now he asks a question. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, I want to start with what this passage teaches us about the history of the kingdom of God. Now, as you can see now that the religious leaders are done testing Jesus, it's his turn to ask a question. And right away, he asks this question. I realize it's obscurity here. I'll explain the question in just a moment. But he asks this question about David and the Messiah And this question would bring to mind the people of Israel, the nationalistic hopes of Israel. Now, what do I mean by nationalistic uh, hopes? Well, here's where the history of the kingdom of God comes in. At the beginning of human history, God, the creator and the king of the world, is ruling the world. His subjects, Adam and Eve, live in absolute bliss under his kingship. Everything in his kingdom works the way it should. Like Eve never asks Adam if a certain dress makes her look fat. Adam doesn't have to get up twice every night to go to the bathroom. Life is great in the kingdom. The animals, humans, they all work together. And the universe works together. All under God's kingship. Okay. Until... Adam and Eve decide that they don't want to live under God's kingship anymore. They want to be their own kings. And so they rebel against God. And from that moment on, utopia becomes dystopia. And God's perfect kingdom is thrown into chaos. And Adam and Eve have to leave their home in Eden. Now that's where the kingdom of God starts. That's, that's That's the beginning of this idea of the kingdom of God. Even though Adam and Eve sort of are kicked out of, the, uh, of, the, of Eden and out of this perfect little kingdom, God doesn't respond the way that you might think he would. Like you might think he would say, Oy vey, I tried, now they're on their own. But no, he doesn't respond like that at all. He immediately promises that he's going to restore his perfect kingdom And he's going to put the world back the way it was supposed to be. And his plan to do that, to put the world back the way it was supposed to be, his plan to do that becomes progressively clearer throughout the rest of the Bible. We learn that very quickly after Adam and Eve sin, we learn that God is going to use the nation of Israel to restore this perfect kingdom. And specifically, we learn that he is going to use a descendant of Israel's greatest king, King David. This descendant, this this descendant of David, will be the king that makes this kingdom, this perfect world, this perfect kingdom, become a reality. The, The Hebrew word for this king is Messiah. But Israel, like Adam and Eve, they don't want to live under God's rulership. And so they continue to rebel against him. And as a result, like Adam and Eve, they're taken captive by neighboring countries and have to leave their their land. Now the Old Testament prophets tell us that, that again... God doesn't respond in the way you might think he would in spite of Israel's disobedience and capture by other countries. God hasn't forgotten his promise. The Messiah will still come and the Messiah will still put the world back to rights in the kingdom of God. Now by the time that the New Testament opens, Israel is no longer in captivity, but they're also not their own sovereign nation either. The occupying force that is ruling over Israel at the opening of the New Testament is the Roman Empire. And the people of Israel chafe against the Roman Empire. They resent the Roman Empire. And the way Israel understands God's plan to put the world back to rights is that he's going to send this Messiah. And what they think is that he is going to come with an awesome display of military power and overthrow Rome. And then turn Israel into the great sovereign nation that it once was. Now that's not what's going to happen. That's what they think is going to happen. That's what they're waiting for. It's what they're longing for. And this is what the nationalistic hope of the people of Israel is. Okay? And so in this question, when Jesus speaks of David, and when he speaks of the Messiah, and he speaks about a time in which Messiah's enemies will be put under his feet, He's using words that call to mind the kingdom that God had promised Israel. So it's something like this. If, if I say uh, LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, what do you think of? What do you think of? Somebody, what do you think of? Yeah, the Cle- Cleveland, the, the, the national championship, the, the Cleveland one. If I say uh, Peyton Manning, what do you guys think of? Uh, what is it? Yeah, the Super Bowl, Denver Broncos, Super Bowl, all of that. Okay, now be careful with this next one, uh, because we're in church. After all, if I say Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, what do you think of? What do you think of the presidential election? I hope that's what you're thinking. These are not obscure references in our culture, right? And neither were uh, the references to David and the Messiah. They instantly brought to mind in the people of Israel the kingdom of God. And so you see this question that Jesus asks is what connects us back to his comment about the kingdom of God in verse 34. Now, I realize that even as I tell you all of that, because that's a lot of information, I realize that even as I tell you all of that, That it probably seems to many of you like this is just irrelevant Jewish religious history. But I want you to understand that it's not irrelevant Jewish history. But that is very relevant history for you and I today. Because it is what this kingdom of God is what all of us all of humanity is longing for. Last week I talked about the fact that just in the month of July we had seen so many tragedies. Uh, in our nation and around the world. We've seen the, we've seen the chaos and the continuing disintegration of the perfect kingdom that God created long ago. We see the effects of Adam and Eve's rebellion and humanity's continuing rebellion against God's kingship, his rulership over the Lord. What we saw in the month of July, what we will see next month, what we have seen uh, in, you know, all through our lives, is what happens when humans want to be their own autonomous rulers, okay? And in the political conventions of the last two weeks, we've heard presidential candidates speak about how they want to plan and manage all of this chaos and all of this disintegration and how they want to bring as much health and wholeness as they can into the world through their leadership. But as great a nation as America is, No system of human government can ever once and for all solve the problems of the world. And we can never put the world back to the way that God created it to be. It is what we all want. It is what we all want. But no human system of government can do it. When we say that we want terrorism to come to an end, what we're longing for, we don't know it, you don't say it, but what you're longing for is the kingdom of God in the future. When everything is going to be put back right. When we say that we're tired of racism and we want an end to the enmity between police departments and African Americans, we are longing for the kingdom of God. That's what it will be like one day in the future. When we say we want an end to social injustice, we're longing for the kingdom of God that was promised to Israel. When we say that we want an end to cancer and death, we're longing for the future kingdom of God that was promised to Israel. Again, we don't know that we're longing for that perhaps, but we are. This Promise of a kingdom that is so much a part of Israel's history is what we are all still longing for thousands of years later in the year 2016. And the good news is, as I said a moment ago, in spite of all of Adam and Eve's sin, in spite of all of Israel's sin, in spite of all of humanity's sin, God has not forgotten his promise to Israel to provide them a kingdom in the future which he will rule the world from, and that the world will be set back to the way it was created to be. Now that's good news, is it not? That's what we're all longing for. And so the kingdom of God is not irrelevant to Jewish, to us today. It's as as relevant to us today as it was to Israel 2,000 years ago. Okay, so now that is, that's sort of in a history. I mean, you're not going to believe it, but I really condense that. That, in a nutshell, is the history of the kingdom of God. Okay, now, let's move on because every kingdom needs a ruler. So I want to move on now to the ruler of this kingdom of God, okay? And again, in verse 35, when Jesus uses this word Messiah, that's what he's uh, referring to. He's referring to the ruler of the kingdom of God. Now, let me just explain this question that Jesus asks in verses 35 to 37. One of the reasons that the religious elite hated Jesus was that he kept making claims that he was God. They hated that. Understand that the religious leaders of Israel expected a Messiah, of course, but they taught And all of the people of Israel believed as a result of their teaching that this Messiah would be merely human. Now if that were true, there is no future kingdom of God. There is no hope for the future of our planet because no human can solve all of the problems of our world. When Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah and that he was also God, the religious leaders saw this as blasphemy, and they hated him for it. Jesus' counterattack on the religious leaders of Israel is so powerful, this question is so powerful, because he uses their own expertise against them. The passage that he quotes from here is Psalm 110, and you know, it's this is right, these, remember, these are the teachers of the law. This is their, this is their uh, I used the word bailiwick the other day, and Sean Little didn't have any idea what I was talking about. You know what I'm talking about when I say bailiwick? Okay, this is their thing. This is their, this is their area of expertise, okay? Psalm 110, in Psalm 110, David, the great king of Israel, whom God promised the Messiah would come from, he wrote about this coming Messiah in Psalm 110. And so Jesus asks them essentially this. He turns and he asks the crowd who's who's watching, and the religious leaders are right there. And he asks them essentially this. If the Messiah is supposed to be just a man, how do you explain Psalm 110? Psalm 110. How do you explain that? Because David says, in the very first line, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, if the Messiah were just a human descendant of David, David never would have called him my Lord. He would have called him what? My son. My son. And so Jesus is asking, well then, why would David call him my Lord? And the answer, of course, is that the only way that could happen is if Jesus were both David's son, in other words, his descendant, but he was God's son At the same time. And so David himself was saying that the Messiah, the ruler of the kingdom of God, would be both man and God at the same time, which is exactly what Jesus claimed to be. And he backed this claim up with all of his miracles, including the miracle of all miracles, his resurrection. Now, the religious leaders, you'll notice here, have no response to this. Why? Because, of course, Jesus is right, and they know it. And yet in two days, they will still crucify him. Why? He's used their own scriptures, their own king, David, to prove that he is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised that will set the world back to the way that it was supposed to be. Why would they have him crucified in the next two days? Here's why. Because if what Jesus says is true, they will be seen as frauds. And they will lose their position, and they will lose their respect, and they will lose their celebrity, and they will lose all of their wealth. If you were to read ahead in verses 38 through 40, Jesus says all of this when he describes them. He says that they're attention hungry and honor hungry, and they're so money hungry. Look at verse 40. They're so money hungry that they devour widows' houses. Like they take advantage of the weakest of society for their own uh, to to uh, pad their own bank accounts. But I want you to notice that nowhere in those verses does he describe them as God hungry. These religious leaders, none of them he says, none of them are God hungry. You see if Jesus is right they would have to sacrifice all that they so dearly loved and they'd have to bend their knee to him. And they'd rather kill him than do that. Over the years, um, I've met a lot of people who will tell me that they, you know, that they don't believe in Jesus. And uh, you know, not, sometimes I'll ask them, I'll, I'll ask them why. And they'll tell me about all sorts of things that other people have told them or about things that they've read online or they've read in books or whatever. But sometimes if I ask them, have you ever read about Jesus straight from the Bible yourself? Many, in fact, most, will tell me no, they haven't. And maybe that describes some of you here today. Like maybe you're here today and you're a skeptic, and I, that's okay. I think Jesus would affirm your skepticism as long as you're intellectually honest about it. Read about him firsthand. Open the Bible yourself. Open to the Gospels and read the stories of his life firsthand. And listen, if you don't want to do that, I want to challenge you to ask yourself why. I mean, think about this. He is the only one in human history who has had the audacity to claim a virgin birth. He is the only one in human history who has ever claimed a resurrection. Look at it this way. If Jesus is who the Bible says he is, you have a lot to lose. If he's not... If it's all a fraud, well, you still read the best-selling book in all of human history. What do you lose? Nothing. I would ask you this question. Is it possible that you, like the Pharisees, don't want Jesus' claims to be true? Is that possible? Like you don't want them to be true. Because like the religious leaders, you know it will mean that you have to give up some things that you've built your life upon, not the least of which is your moral autonomy, for example, and you're afraid to lose that. So rather than read about Jesus for yourself, you either just ignore him or you simply recite the same stale objections to Jesus that you read somewhere on the internet and that I've read too. Is that possible? It's just a question. Is it possible that you don't want the truths of Jesus to be real? Just a question. Okay. The ruler of the kingdom of God, the Messiah, is both God and man. We've talked about the history of the kingdom. We've talked about now the ruler of the kingdom. He is to be both God and man, which Jesus claims himself to be. And he backed up with all sorts of astounding miracles that only God could perform. Third... Let's look at the subversiveness of this kingdom of God. I want to read from verse 41, if you would. Verse 41. Jesus, uh, he's still in the temple area. He sits down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth Only a few cents. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. The irony is very thick here because you'll remember back in verse 40, Jesus has said that the religious leaders devoured widows' houses. The very kind of person that the religious leaders took advantage of is the kind of person that Jesus commends here. Jesus chose this widow to say something about the values of the kingdom of God. In every way, she's the perfect contrast to the religious leaders. They're selfish and money hungry. She's poor and yet very generous. They're celebrities in their culture, we don't even know this lady's name. They loved to be honored with the best seats of the ho- in, in the house when they went out. No one would have honored this woman. They were powerful men. She represented two of the most powerless constituencies in the world of that time, women and widows, and yet Jesus pays attention, attention to her. She's the one, not the powerful, not the wealthy, not the celebrities, not the men That Jesus notices and commends. And I have to tell you, you know, it says that Jesus called his disciples together to look at, to see what this woman is doing. And and it would be hard to overstate how blown away in that culture that the disciples would have been that Jesus was using a woman as an example for the disciples. And here's what I want you to understand is that the values of the kingdom of God are socially subversive. All of the things that the world values and pays attention to are turned upside down in the kingdom of God. We don't pay attention to widows and women. Jesus says, I do. I do. We only pay attention to celebrities. Lots of money, lots of fame. Jesus says, I don't pay attention to them. I pay attention to the weak and the poor and the powerless. I said a few minutes ago that Israel understood that you know, they thought that the idea of the kingdom of God was that a Messiah was going to come with a powerful display of military might and he was going to overthrow what Israel perceived to be their greatest enemy, which they perceived to be Rome. What they did not understand was that they and the rest of the world had a far greater enemy than Rome. Relatively speaking, Rome was nothing. Rome was a puppet. Rome, Rome, Rome was just a symptom of a deeper problem. If you read the end of the Bible, it is true that there will be a day in which Messiah comes with an awesome display of power and he will establish his kingdom and he will rule the world from the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. And in that day, all of the problems of the world will be solved once and for all and the world will be put back to right. But what Israel didn't understand was that before that would happen the Messiah would come and he would conquer the greater enemy of humanity the enemy that was behind the massive Roman empire and the enemy was sin and death and he would establish a different kind of kingdom that would overcome evil with a subversive conspiracy of good and you know i mean think about this mere men uh, always create earthly kingdoms, right? Uh, the Babylonian Empire, the, uh, uh, the Roman Empire, um, uh, the United States, uh, you know, men create earthly kingdoms. But the God-man, the Messiah, was going to create a spiritual kingdom before he returns again in the future. And in this spiritual kingdom, people from every nation of the world who willingly choose to submit themselves to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be a part of this. Like, he's not going to come and storm their will, like Rome would do physically. Jesus is going to have people in this kingdom who willingly choose to be a part of it. And these people of every ethnicity, blacks and whites and Middle Easterners and Americans and Germans and Jews, would all live together In perfect unity. Under the authority of their Messiah. And they would be marked by a love. Like the world has never seen before. People like this widow. Would be part of the kingdom. Weak. Poor. Despised. Powerless. No names. And at first. This kingdom's beachhead would begin in the land of Israel. But then, over the years, this kingdom would expand throughout the whole world. Not by military power, but by a subversive spiritual power. The power of the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ himself working in the lives of his people to overcome evil with good. And the collection of these people would be called the church. The church is the present form of the kingdom of God. What's interesting is that here we are meeting as a church today. Over 2,000 years after these events. And the church in the world is alive and well. And yet the Roman Empire is no more. And in fact, was overthrown essentially by Christianity In the year 476 AD. To whom do we attribute that? Well, we don't attribute it to human ingenuity. We don't attribute it to human wealth or power or celebrities or any of the things that the world values. Instead, what we attribute it to is the supernatural power of God overcoming evil quietly, inconspicuously, among the least noticed, the powerless, the poor. That's the subversiveness. Of the kingdom of God. Just like this widow. And I just quickly just want to close with this. I want to talk about the cost of this kingdom. And I want you to look at the last line of chapter 12. Last line of chapter 12 says. "They They all gave out of their wealth. But she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything. All she had to live on. Now, that's how the NIV translates this. But I want to read to you how the Greek text of of Mark actually uh, translated. We've put it up on the screen. It says, she gave out of her poverty, she put in everything, even her whole life. That was a remarkable sacrifice. But Jesus is pointing to this widow for a larger reason. He wants his disciples to understand that in two short days, Jesus would make an even greater sacrifice than this woman. On Friday, the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel, the God-man, the one Israel expected to overwhelm Rome with military might, will die in an act of apparent weakness at the very hands of the Roman Empire on a cross where he will give his whole life, literally, not figuratively, And why does he do it? Is it because he just wanted to be a martyr? Is it because he just wanted to be different from all of the other religious leaders in the world? It's not that at all. It's because there was no other way for humanity's greatest enemy, sin and death, to be defeated. He is the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin. And so on the cross, like the widow in this story, the king of the universe gave his entire life so that those who would believe in him could be a part of the kingdom of God. Like the widow, Jesus became poor so that we could become rich in the spiritual blessings of the kingdom. Like the widow, Jesus became exploited for our sakes. Like the widow, Jesus became weak so that we could become strong. The cost of the kingdom of God was the death of the Messiah. And listen, when you understand this, that the long-awaited Messiah died for you, your heart begins to melt. And you know, we talked earlier about this life that you, know, you want to keep everything to yourself. You don't want, the, you don't want the, the story of Jesus to be true because you don't want to give over your life. When you understand what Jesus did for you, this life that you never wanted to give away, suddenly there's nothing that you wouldn't sacrifice for him like this widow, you're willing to give it all away for him. For those of you who are here this morning, who have never believed in Jesus, what are you afraid of this morning? You're not being asked to give your life over to a cruel taskmaster. You're being asked to give your life over to the Messiah who loved you so much that he willingly took the punishment that you deserved so that you could live the life that he deserved. He's inviting you to be a part of his kingdom. And I think he would appeal to you this morning, perhaps even through me. Won't you enter the kingdom today by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then for those of you who have already believed in Christ, I want to ask you something. Do you realize what you are a part of? You're a part of the kingdom of God. The present form of that is the church. And, And here in the church, in this form of the kingdom of God, all of the values of the kingdom are to be displayed to the rest of the world. While the rest of the world is in decay and chaos, the church is to be a collection of people who have adopted the values of the kingdom. And as a result, we manifest the unity and the peace and the love and the selflessness that's needed to solve the problems that the rest of the world can't solve. In a sense, folks, we as a church are to be an advertisement to the world around us of what the future kingdom of God that is still to come will be like. And so I would ask you, what, those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ already, what do you value? Are the things that you value, are they more like the religious leaders? You still find yourself valuing money and power and fame and honor. Or are you more like the widow in this story? And then how do the values of the kingdom reveal themselves in your marriage, in your work, in your ambition? Like is your relationship with your spouse, is it selfless in giving or is it more about power and receiving? At work, are you striving to get ahead at any cost? Do you take credit for, uh, for anybody else's ideas that are good? Or can you celebrate with others when they move ahead of you? And can you give others credit for their ideas? With the life of Christ in you from his resurrection from the dead, your life can and should look very different from the rest of the world. It can. If you have believed in Jesus, you're a member of the kingdom of God. If you were to go home today and just take a quick read through the book of Acts in the New Testament, the book of Acts documents the growth of the kingdom of God from the moment that Jesus is raised again from the dead all the way to the end of the book uh, of Acts, which ends with the gospel of the kingdom reaching Rome. But it didn't stop there. In spite of satanic warfare and opposition... The kingdom of God has continued to grow and spread because the power working within it, the power of the Holy Spirit is greater than any satanic opposition. It spread not only to Rome, but it spread to the United States and it spread to a city called Evansville and it spread to people like you, even though all of the satanic opposition in the world has wanted to keep it from you. This is why every empire that has set out to crush the church has itself been crushed. It's why 70 years of denial could not erase God from the Russian psyche. This is why today in communist China, 60 million people worship Jesus Christ, many of whom worship him in underground churches. And the church in China continues to grow subversively at the rate of 3 to 5 million new converts a year in communist China. You are a part of this subversive kingdom of God that moves forward through people who continue to unlearn the values of the world and to adopt the values of the kingdom. Out there, there's chaos and disintegration and violence. In here, in this church, in every church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ... There is to be equality, unity, love, peace, and selflessness that is so clear that the rest of the world sees us and says, what do they have that we don't have? Ask yourself this, where is your hope? Where is your hope for the world that we live in? Is your hope for your life or is your hope for the world in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if it is, it is profoundly misplaced. The hope of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the king of the world. And I want to tell you something. He is not stopping. The only question is this. Do you want to be a spectator to the growth of the kingdom of God? Or do you want to be part of it? And if you want to become part of it, become like this woman in this story. And give your entire life over to the king. Would you bow your heads with me? We anticipate a day in the future, Lord Jesus, when you will return and set the world right. Everything will be the way it was designed to be. All of the injustices in the world, all of the violence in the world, all of the racism in the world, death, cancer, all of these things car accidents, they will all be eradicated but in this period of time Lord Jesus, we recognize that as a church we are the spiritual kingdom of God Lord Jesus, would you make us a place that represents the values of your kingdom and that displays to the rest of the world around us all that they look for, all that they want, and that they would recognize that it is found only in Jesus Christ Would you make us that kind of place? We thank you for the privilege of being a part of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, for those who are here today that have never believed in you, I pray that today they would come to a place where they recognize that you, the King, the Messiah, died for their sins. And they would place their faith, that they would believe in you. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, who will one day come and set the world right, we worship you in your name that we pray.